Episode 45, The Decline of the Western Civilization, Part 2, The Metal Years. Before we get into the analysis of this documentary, if you like the podcast, please subscribe. If you haven't already done so, please leave a review on iTunes. Positive reviews and subscriptions help other KISS fans to find this podcast. If you have any comments, you want to provide any feedback... You can reach me at psychocircuspodcast at gmail.com. That's psychocircuspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter. I am at RyoV on Twitter. That's at R-Y-O-V-I-E on Twitter. All right, the feedback is in from the last episode, the uh, bonus episode that I was able to do with Jay from the Sexy Armpit. And uh, apparently you guys either really like Jay, which I totally understand. I like Jay a lot as well. Or you really like hearing about uh, the set lists or a combination of the two. But um, got a lot of good feedback from the most recent episode, a lot of emails and uh, and my favorites, of course, tweets. I love getting uh, tweets, as you know. I love my Twitter, so I love looking on the uh, feed and seeing that you guys had tweeted about the uh, episode as well. So thank you for that feedback. It was a lot of fun to do, and um, you know I'm looking forward to my upcoming. Uh, visit with Kiss. Um, you know, not that I'm visiting them personally, but I'm looking forward to uh, my upcoming concerts at the end of this month. I got two, uh, one at the Garden and one in Philly. So definitely looking forward to that and then doing a quick recap, you know, of um, just really what my expectations were. And then, uh, you know, we did that episode last week where we talked about kind of what we would switch out. But, you know, just interested in seeing the uh, concert in its entirety and kind of feeling the vibe and and seeing what it's like when they actually play the songs. You know, it's one thing to look at a set list on paper, but then to actually see it performed usually gives you uh, a lot of, you know, different perspectives. So really looking forward to that um and like i said you know i got a got a lot of feedback uh, a lot of emails and and tweets so thank you very much for that and uh you know one in particular uh i want to give a shout out to hoju kulander on twitter that's at hoju kulander and uh you know he tweeted out what he would replace for uh his set list so um Spoiler alert, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. If you don't want to know any of the songs in the set, I would say go ahead and fast forward this to about the four and a half minute mark. Uh, We should be safe by then. Um, But if you don't care about hearing a couple of songs that are going to be in the set, then go ahead and listen. So what Hoju said was he would take out War Machine and put in Calling Dr. Love. Not 100% sure if I agree with that. I think Calling Dr. Love is a little bit overplayed. Um, And, you know, I've seen it a lot on tour, but 
Same with War Machine. So I don't know that I would want either of them in the set list. Uh, he would take out Do You Love Me and put in She. That's a great call. She Live would be magnificent. And I really wish they would have done that for this tour. Um, he would take out Detroit Rock City and put in Creatures. I love adding Creatures. I don't know about pulling Detroit Rock City for the Farewell Tour. But adding Creatures, definitely a good mix. Uh, he would pull out Hide Your Heart for Raise Your Glasses. So look, if you're going to put... Uh, I guess you could call Hide Your Heart an obscurity. I don't think it's that obscure. It's a pretty big hit for the band. But um, if you're going to pull out Hide Your Heart, putting in Raise Your Glasses is a nice touch. I, I don't think they've ever played that song live. And it's actually a very good song from Psycho Circus. So that would be cool. And then he would pull out I Was Made for Loving You and put in Strutter. So good calls there. Um I, again, Strutter, a little overplayed. I'm not sure. I don't mind uh, getting rid of I Was Made For Loving You, though. Obviously, you probably know by now how I feel about that song. He also said they could have added in any of the following. Modern Day Delilah, A Million to One, Magic Touch, Almost Human, and Unholy. So those would be good ads. And if Paul was true to his word and we actually got 25 songs like we were promised, you know, you add in these five songs, there's your 25. Um, it's some great, great calls there. Uh, Modern Day Delilah is a good song. I, it should be in. You know, it's a farewell tour. You should touch upon things you've done most recently. A Million to One, great call. I don't know if Paul could sing it as well as he did back in the day, but I'd still love to see it in the set. Uh, Magic Touch, that would be magnificent really really good call i'm actually jealous i didn't think of that one myself so good call on that one hoju um almost human of course i would absolutely die to see that live i think the only way you're going to get that is you know at the gene simmons solos show paul would never allow that in and then unholy would be nice look anything from revenge is going to be cool to be in the set you know and they did unholy back on the rock the nation tour in 2004 so you know it's not like they don't know it and they're, they're afraid to play it so that would, that would be good to add in too so really good job there um you know and again thanks guys appreciate the feedback keep it coming and uh you know, if you haven't listened to that set list episode because you're waiting until you go to the concert, by all means, feel free after you go to the concert to tweet me, email me, give me your thoughts. You know, if you're just catching up to that episode now, feel free by all means to email me. And that goes for any past episode. You know, if you're just coming on board to this show, uh, we've been doing this for uh, well over a year now. So if you're just coming on board and catching up and you got any feedback that you want to give on any previous episode, by all means, write in, tweet me, reach out to me. Don't be afraid, um, you know, just because, you know, maybe you want to talk about the episode on the first Kiss album. By all means, I welcome feedback to that episode, too. I think the show has progressed and grown a lot since then. But any and all feedback is always welcome. Psycho Circus Podcast at gmail.com. All right, so let's go ahead and get into this documentary analysis and the decline of the western civilization part two the metal years this was released on june 17th 1988 by new line cinema new line cinema was uh, pretty famous for doing uh, the nightmare on elm street movies uh, right off the top of my head i know they did that they did a bunch of movies uh, you know they had a bunch of horror movies they did in the 80s a bunch of other movies but uh, nightmare on elm street is probably their most well-known franchise and they did the decline of the western civilization part two the metal years uh, so that was interesting this was directed by 
Penelope Spheres, and the bands portrayed in the documentary include the following. Alice Cooper, Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley from KISS, obviously, Steven Tyler and Joe Perry from Aerosmith, Ozzy Osbourne, Dave Mustaine from Megadeth, London, Odin, Seduce, Poison, Tough, Vixen, Faster Pussycat, Wasp, and of course, Lemmy. Love the Lemmy scenes, and we'll get more into that uh, in a little bit. And then Ricky Rackman was also in the documentary. He was um, co-owner of the Cat House at the time, and we're going to dive into that in a little bit as well. The documentary was produced by Jonathan Dayton, Valerie Ferris, and Guy J. Luthan. So this, this is the documentary on the glam metal scene of the late 80s. I mean, if you want to know what it was like, if you want to know what we went through and how we survived it, this is definitely the documentary to watch. You know, if you weren't around for the 80s and you always wondered what it was really like, this is the documentary you want to pick up. And and while there are times when, you know, I got outright frustrated with Ms. Sphere's way of asking a question or talking over some of the rockers, it's really it's really a minor complaint. You know, when looking at the documentary as a whole, it has so much to give that I can actually live with those minor annoyances. Now, I've only included this documentary as part of the Psycho Circus podcast series because Gene and Paul have prominent parts in the movie, and thus, I consider this part of their overall body of work. It's like another Kiss Home video, but with a lot of other bands included. And it helps describe what Kiss was going through in the late 80s, how they had to change their style from that 70s rock, you know, from from that point in their history. And, you know, a look. they had to take a look at the music scene as a whole, which this documentary does. And the scene was quite interesting. You know, debauchery ran rampant. Girls were used as nothing but sex objects. Groupies were glorified for their sex acts that they could do. Drugs and alcohol were all over the place. And every band with a good-looking lead singer that had half a voice really thought they were going to be the next huge thing. It was a very interesting time in the life of metal music. Now... There are plenty of notable and memorable scenes that we're going to cover throughout the course of this episode, but let's start with the stars of this podcast series, shall we? I mean, this is why we do it, for the guys in KISS, and if that's all you want to hear about, I'm going to give it to you up front, and then you can tap out if you don't care about the rest of this documentary, but I implore you to stay with the whole episode, and if you haven't seen it, or you haven't seen it in a long time, do yourself a favor and watch Decline of the West. Western Civilization Part 2 again. It just, it really just takes you back. Okay, now, Gene and Paul are borderline ridiculous in this film, but honestly, after Kiss Exposed, I didn't really expect anything less. Gene was filmed in a lingerie shop in Hollywood, eyeing up all the beautiful, scantily clad women. 
Uh, and Gene talks more about women and sex than he does about music. But that's typical for Gene. You know, what I found most interesting about his scenes while I was rewatching the film was how young Gene was. I forgot that he was so young once, you know, because I, I only see him in the here and now. And, you know, he wasn't that bad looking either. We all give Gene a hard time over the years and we laugh that he wasn't the good looking dude in the band. He wasn't good looking at all. And he was only able to get girls because of his money and his tongue. But when you watch him in Decline of the Western Civilization, I realized that he wasn't that bad looking of a dude. I mean, he fit the scene and the style and he wasn't horrendous looking at all. Now you throw in the fact that he was a member of KISS and of course his stock skyrocketed. I just found that amusing that, again, these guys were young ones. And while Gene was in the lingerie store, Paul was at what we are supposed to believe was his home in bed with five girls. And it just reminded me of the caroling scene from Kiss Exposed all over again. Now, Paul talks about the lifestyle that comes with being a famous musician. And he talks about how money isn't that important, you know, all while being surrounded in bed with five beautiful women. So I I think the money got those girls for the scene, Paul. So money is somewhat important. Now, the scene is supposed to make us believe that this is how Paul lives his life day to day. But it's obviously staged, a la Kiss Exposed. It's ridiculous and it's campy. And I often wonder how in the world they thought this was cool to shoot. Even for the 80s, Paul's scenes were a bit excessive and a bit silly. But there is one line that Paul threw out that really resonated with me and it's something, you know, something I'll probably remember for a long time. And he was talking about money and how rock rockers make money, you know, and how how you know, obviously bands like Kiss have been around for a while, they they made their money, they have a lot of money, and then the up and coming bands, you know, they're struggling to get by. But the one thing Kiss said, or Kiss, one thing Paul said was he said, you know, money isn't that important, which I don't necessarily agree with. But he said the thing about money is Having money just means that you don't have to worry about money. And, you know, he said it in this campy Paul way, and, you know, I don't know if we're supposed to be tongue-in-cheek, but if you think about that and you analyze that, you know, you look at the deeper roots of that, having money means you don't have to worry about money. But you're probably going to worry about something else. So a very prolific statement you know and it was just kind of cast about casually but again when you pick it apart and you look at a deeper analysis you know having money means you don't have to worry about money so this is something i think about you know is i'm a nine to five guy i don't have a ton of money i'm hoping one day that i'll have enough to retire but again i'd like i'd like to get to that point in my career where i have enough money to not worry about money and thus i can retire so just something i caught uh, that he threw out there that i thought was very interesting now outside of gene and paul there were several other bands represented represented and several other things going on in this documentary Riggy Rackman and Faster Pussycat are one of the first that we encounter. And at the time, they were the co-owners of the Cat House Club in L.A. And I thought that was really interesting because I did not remember that they owned a club together at all. Faster Pussycat is a band that I like a lot. 
And their performance in this film was great. They played a couple of songs live from their club, and they gave a pretty solid interview. And this was before they would have a runaway hit with House of Pain, so the band was still on the rise. Not that they ever achieved the superstar level, but I would say they did all right over the years. But they mentioned in the film that, like a lot of bands, money was always an issue. They were always broke. They would go out on tour, and that would cost them $2,500 in expenses, and and they would make about $200 a night for each band member. So they would have to play several shows to have any chance at profitability. And even if they turned a profit, it wasn't anything dream-worthy. And of course, you know, there was drinking and drugging and girls to think about as well, and all that stuff costs money. So any profits that they made, probably got cut into by their lifestyle and thus they ended up being broke for a long time um you know fortunately the band did go on to have a huge massive hit like i said i like faster pussycat a lot um so seeing them in this documentary in their earliest incarnation was was a real treat for me now alice cooper was brilliant as always and not that i expected anything less from him i mean it's alice cooper for crying out loud um, it appears that he was filmed before a concert. Uh, he's sitting on a stage with some of his props around, so I'm assuming it was before a concert. Anyway, Cooper added a lot of insight into the power of that type of music and the adrenaline rush that the music brings, metal music, and what it means to be a fan of heavy metal music. And it was really awesome to see him in this documentary and to see him give his take on the power that metal music brings to the masses. And, you know, that's why he does it. You know, he said he wasn't the cool kid in school, basically. Um... You know, he turned into this character through metal music, and he's happy to share that with fans who enjoy it with him. So, as always, Alice Cooper was just great. He is great. He's he's Alice Cooper. (laughs) Poison also made an appearance, and that was the entire band, so all four members of Poison. And this had to be filmed just before or just as their second album, Open Up and Say Ah, was coming out. It was it was definitely filmed before Every Rose Has Its Thorn became the huge, huge hit that it's known for today. Because I don't think that song went big until after this documentary was released. So the filming of it was well before the release of it. Now, maybe it was filmed during the recording of Open Up and Say Ah, but in any case, Poison was great. They were laughing, they were having a good time. They're basically just showing the folks how much fun it is to be in a band. And when you look at the bands in this documentary, I think Poison is the only band that represents true glam or true hair metal. I mean, Megadeth was harder than that. Wasp, to me, was never really hair metal, um, or glam metal. Ozzy and Lemmy were old school heavy metal, and, and Kiss was whatever the moment called for, so they were glam at the time, but Poison was probably the biggest glam band in the film. And then Faster Pussycat and Vixen are glam as well, but Poison was way bigger than both of them. So I guess what I'm trying to point out with this exercise is that all walks of metal were well represented, and I think that's what um, Penelope Spheris was trying to do, you know, represent all types of metal at that particular time in music history. Now, there were also three unknown, unsigned bands that were filmed for this documentary. London, Odin, and Seduce. And I often wonder, what the hell happened to them? All three bands claimed they were going to make it, and they were going to make it 
big. They were going to be the next big thing. They were going to be huge stars. They didn't know how to do anything else. So this was all they had. And so I said to myself, what the hell happened to them? So, of course, I had to do some research and look it up. Now, Seduce never broke through further than their hometown area of Detroit. They were huge in the Detroit area, but they couldn't get real, any real traction across the rest of the country. They still perform gigs locally to this day, locally in the Detroit area, but outside of Detroit, they aren't really known. The band split up around 1990 when they realized that things were not going to work out for them. So while they said it was make it or bust, they, they didn't really make it. Now, London also tanked, but they made it all the way to 1992 before they broke down. They had worked hard, but in the end, they were broke and they had no hope for a record contract. By then, the music scene was changing and it was moving away from the bands like London. Now, their manager supposedly left the band in New Orleans with no money and no way home, which that's real crappy if that's true. Um, so the band members went on to end up doing other things, uh, construction, hairstyling, etc. But they never really made it in music. Now, there was talk that the band was going to get back together and try to work on an album, but I'm not sure what happened there. It never, never came to fruition. Odin had actually already split up before this documentary even premiered. Jeff Duncan, the band's guitarist, was a member of Armored Saint by this time, and by the, or by the time the film debuted, rather, and he went to the premiere as a member of Armored Saint, and he, quote, cringed when the Odin pieces aired. It was huge publicity for the band, for the band Odin, but they had already gone their separate ways. And according to Jeff, there were too many egos, drugs, and alcohol for the band to stay together, and thus they did not. Every once in a while, the band will get back together and do a show or two in the L.A. area, but other than that, nothing. And I personally, I think they would be a perfect band to open for M3 one year. You throw Odin out there. Um, any of these bands, really, Seduce, London, any one of those three, you could throw them out there to be an opener for M3 because it really fits the scene. And that's where all those you know hair metal bands, metal, 80s metal bands come back to, uh, to relive, uh, you know, play for the fans that really want to see it. Now, we get some great shots of Ozzy Osbourne. Uh, Ozzy's making breakfast while filming his interview. He's, he's very coherent and vivacious even. But I wonder if he didn't ham it up a lot for the camera. I mean, he's making eggs and bacon, and the eggs and bacon are obviously undercooked, almost raw. And then he pours juice that just spills all over the table and makes a huge mess. Now, there are stories out there that say Ozzy staged the whole thing, including the spilled juice, for whatever reason. You know, maybe he thought this was campy. Maybe he thought he was being funny. Maybe he thought this whole documentary thing was stupid and he was forced to do it by management. I don't know. Then there are stories out there that say Ozzy was just lit, and that's why those things happened. Now, he was supposed to be clean at this time in his career, so he shouldn't have been lit, but who the hell knows, right? I mean, Ozzy's been in and out so many times, you just never know. Now, Ozzy does have a good conversation about drugs and what they did to him, and he talks about how he had been clean and sober for many months at that point. I thought Ozzy's scenes were really good, just a little campy, and that's why I wonder if maybe they were, in fact, staged. 
Lemmy was, of course, Lemmy, which means magnificent. He had a very serious tone, and he was... Um, he was very upfront about everything he discussed. He was very matter-of-fact and down-to-earth, which, you know, is very fitting for Lemmy, and according to everything I've heard and read about him. I never got to meet the man myself, which I'm actually very disappointed about. I would love to have met Lemmy. But everyone who knew him said that was that was his way. He He was real. And I like where he was filmed, overlooking the L.A. highway. Now, some fans seemed upset that he was filmed so far away, but I actually thought it was cool. Um, you know, I thought it was good cinematography. There were some nice shots, too. You had sunrise, you had evening, you had sunset, you had all the L.A. traffic in the background. From a cinematography standpoint, I thought it was brilliant. But, again, there were some fans who just they were very irate and upset that he was filmed so far away. But I think that filming was done so they could get the entire background in view. All right, the... Uh, the only thing from this film, this documentary, that we really haven't touched on yet is the biggest elephant in the room, and that is the Chris Holmes pool incident. This one incident, this one piece of filming, was pretty much a wake-up call to the entire community, a what-the-f moment that led to everybody stopping themselves and saying, hmm, do we need to get help I think what made Chris's incident so bad was the fact that it happened in front of his mother. I mean, here's Chris Holmes, lead guitarist for a huge metal band, Wasp, and he's sitting in his pool getting wasted on bottles of vodka while his mother sits close by and watches this all happen. And not only does Chris chug the vodka, he pours half a bottle over his head like it's water. Now, I'm sure some of that was for the camera, and some of that was hoping to get a reaction from whomever was around. Having been a partier from time to time, I know that sometimes you do things hoping for a reaction. But, you know, Chris was grade A wasted, and I don't even think he realized that he was being filmed. And Chris was just pretty much a representative for what the entire scene was like at that time. One big drunk party. That was the way of life back then. And Chris just showed us how it was done. You know, sadly for Chris and Wasp fans, he would leave the band shortly after this film was released. You know, by then he had married Lita Ford and Blackie Lawless, lead singer of Wasp, said that Chris left the band so he could stay at home and wear an apron. I wonder if Chris left the band so he could stay at home and drink some more. Apparently, Lita was no slouch in that department either. But regardless, this showed us a portion of that lifestyle that some fans just weren't ready to see. You know, they had their heads in the sand. They they probably knew what was going on, but they didn't really relate it until we saw that. That was the OS moment. You know, like, wow, what have we gotten into what have we become and it it was scary and it was sad now personally i would love to see a way for a festival like m3 and i keep going back to m3 just because that's you know that's the most well-known well-done festival for this type of music you know for 80s metal music metal that that scene 
M3 is the festival. Uh, and I would like to find, I would love to see a way for M3 to do a decline reunion and take all the bands that they can get from this movie for one festival. I mean, I think that would be pretty awesome move. You know, I know that getting Chris Holmes probably not going to happen. Um, you know, reuniting some of those onside bands that never made it, like Odin and Seduce, might be a little hard. But how cool would it be to see these bands together at one festival? Faster Pussycat, Lizzie Borden, Poison, Alice Cooper, Ozzy, Megadeth, and Kiss all on the same bill. I would pay top dollar for that show. Perhaps they could even find a way to do like a Motorhead tribute for Lemmy. You know, have the rest of the band perform, different singers could sing. You know, I don't know. It's just a thought because these hair metal festivals, they, they need to do something to mix it up. They're, they're starting to get a little predictable and bland. And I think a decline of the Western Civilization reunion would be just the thing to spice it up and make it happen. Alright, that's going to do it for this episode of the Psycho Circus Podcast. As always, thank you for listening. Uh, if you got a comment you want to share, you can email me at psychocircuspodcast at gmail.com. Please be sure to go to iTunes and leave a review. Go to Podify. Uh, <laughs> Wherever you get your podcasts, go there and leave a review, please. Every review helps. Um, you know, spread the word. Uh, let other fran- fans know. Let your friends know. If you got friends that are Kiss fans, you think they'd enjoy this podcast, please spread the word. Get the word out there. The buzz is out there. We're we're getting some traction, and I really really appreciate that. So you know, let's keep that going because uh, you know it just it keeps me motivated too to continue to do this. So um, I I love doing this. I'm happy doing this. But if nobody's listening, (laughs) what's the point, right? So (coughs) please tell two friends to tell two friends and so on and so forth. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the podcast and you'll get your uh, weekly fix directly to your to your inbox or however you get your podcast subscriptions. I do mine through iTunes, so it comes right into my phone for those podcasts that I subscribe to on a regular basis. And, of course, you can check me out on Twitter. I'm at RyoV on Twitter. That's at R-Y-O-V-I-E on Twitter. All right. Thanks again for listening to this uh, this episode. It was, it was fun. It was fun watching this documentary again. I probably haven't seen this since uh, the late 90s. Um, you know, obviously I watched it when I first came out and then I think I watched it again in either the mid to late nineties, you know, probably the college or just after college. And then I don't think I've seen it again until just now, uh, getting ready for this, uh, this podcast episode. So a lot of fun to revisit that and, and see what life was like back in the day. And like I said, if you haven't seen this in a while or you'd never seen it, seek it out it's it's pretty easily available uh for your viewing pleasure so go check it out it's worth a rewatch if it's in your collection dust it off give it a spin and uh you know have a drink on me raise a glass in my honor and say thanks ryo i'm glad i watched this again all right be sure to tune in next time where i will cover hot in the shade and until then the carnival has just begun Woo!